You know, one of the most popular genres of entertainment is mystery. You know, whodunit crime shows, spy and courtroom dramas. Shows that keep you thinking. Shows where you have to put clues together and try to figure out just who the culprit is. There's something within us that likes to put the pieces together and try to figure things out. Remember the game Clue, right? It's Colonel Mustard, you know, in the library with a candlestick. Now imagine that you're in a spy drama. And you've been given this highly valuable, top secret, most important classified document. And, and if this document falls into the wrong hands, dire consequences fall upon the whole world. You have to deliver this document to a very specific person. A person that you have never met. A person that you have absolutely no idea who it is, what they look like. And also imagine now that there's all these imposters that are trying to get at this information. There are many out there whose goal is to try to fool you, to try to make you think that they're the one. So now what would you do If you were given this most valuable, most important secret document, and you had to give it to the one certain specific right person, how would you recognize, how would you make sure that once you met that person, that they were the actual right one and were not an imposter? Well, the best way to do that, you'd have a series of very specific, unique marks of identification. You know, it'd be like, okay, what gender are they? How tall are they? What color is their hair? What color is their eyes? Where's the secret designated meeting place? What specifically uh, kind of clothes are they going to be wearing? What's the secret password? You know, what's the special handshake? And the list would go on and on and on to make sure that when you're meeting this person, that it was the one specific unique person that you were supposed to meet. The more identifiers, the more specific and unique identifiers, the better your chance of finding the right person. Well, folks, that's exactly what the Bible has done for us. You see, you could take the Old Testament and play the game, who is the Messiah? Who is the Savior of the Word? Who is that one specific, unique person? It's been a question on the heart's and minds of people since the dawn of time. See, the Bible has given us dozens upon dozens, even hundreds of specific identifiers that we can use to identify who is the promised Messiah. God has given us clear, unique, and specific marks of identification for the Messiah. It's called Old Testament prophecy. Today we're going to look at some of those specific marks those identifiers of the Messiah as it pertains to his birth. Once thus I saw uh, identified some 300 Messianic Old Testament prophecies. That's some 300 specific, unique marks of identification, clues for the one specific person. Now the Old Testament was written over a period of a thousand years. And it finished hundreds of years before the time of Christ. In fact, we have copies of the Old Testament that date to 200 years before the birth of Jesus. So there is no way 
that when they were writing the Old Testament with all their specific predictive prophecy about the Messiah, there was no way that they could have been written after Jesus. We have been given clear and undeniable evidence throughout the Old Testament that the one who fulfills these marks of identification, that that is the one who is the one true Messiah. And we know is we know that one. That one is Jesus. Only Jesus could and only Jesus did fulfill each Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Only Jesus satisfies those 300 clear, unique, specific marks of identification. He alone is the answer to all the clues. You see, it's Jesus at Bethlehem in the manger. Let's look at a few of those marks of identification this Christmas season that pertain to his birth. First, let's look how Jesus fulfilled prophecy through his lineage. The coming of Jesus into this world was a fulfillment of God's promise, stretching all the way back to the very first man and woman in the Garden of Eden. A way of salvation was needed, and a way of salvation would be provided. From the time that Adam fell into sin, and all mankind was separated from God, until the birth of Jesus, God preserved the human line of the promised Messiah from generation to generation to generation. Two Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, record the genealogies of Jesus. I'm going to be comparing and contrasting and looking at them. If you want to look at them, go into uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1 and the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. See, Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus from Abraham through Joseph, the earthly adopted father of Jesus. Matthew states his purpose for including the genealogy in chapter 1, verse 1. He says he wanted to prove that Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham, and that he was the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah. Luke, meanwhile, records the ancestry of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Between them, the genealogy established both the legal right to the throne of David through Joseph and the physical right of Jesus to hold the throne of David through Mary. Luke starts off his genealogy stating that Jesus was the son of Adam. Now, this might seem like a no-brainer. Of course, all humans, right, all of us are children of Adam. But there's so much more to it than that. You see, right away in the book of Genesis, God predicts the coming of the Messiah. When God pronounced the curse of sin from Adam and Eve, he foretold a time when one of their descendants would crush the head of Satan, the serpent, and that that serpent would bruise the deliverer's heel. And Genesis 3.15 is where we read that. God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. At least two things jump out at us from this verse. One is that the verse specifically is focused on God's judgment on Satan. Satan will be crushed. Salvation comes to its full culmination when Satan is fully defeated. The other point is that there is this one who will come, who will crush Satan. It's the seed of the woman. It's a specific, single, individual that is from the woman. 
Adam is not mentioned. We have in Genesis 3.15 the anticipation of the virgin birth of the Messiah. We see in this struggle Satan's sure defeat, but yet the deliverer will suffer as well. In the midst of the sorrow of the fall, God places the hope of salvation. Just as sin and death were unleashed in the world through Adam, so life and hope and salvation and faith and eternal life will come through one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the seed of Adam, brought freedom and de- from death and bondage. The book of Luke was written to a Gentile audience. So when Luke starts off his genealogy with Adam, he shows that Jesus is not just a Jewish Messiah, but he's the Savior of the world. He's our Savior. The next important person to mention in the lineage is that Jesus was the son of Shem, as recorded in Luke 3, 36. Noah had three sons named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. After the flood, Ham and his descendants were cursed because of the indecent actions toward his father. Shem was singled out for a blessing and was prophesied a unique relationship with God for his line. And Japheth was told that his line would find shelter in the tents of Shem. In Genesis 9, 26-27, Noah says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the servant of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. The Messiah had to come through the line of Shem. And Jesus, in his genealogy in Luke, comes through the line of Shem. Thus, the blessing given to the Shem was fulfilled in Jesus. The next one in the lineage of Jesus that I'd like to highlight is that Jesus was the son of Abraham, which is recorded for us in both genealogies in Luke and Matthew. Abraham was, the, was uh, one of the very two names that Matthew highlights. Because long after the flood, Abraham was chosen by God out of all the people on the earth to be the father of his chosen nation, Israel. Part of the promise that God made to Abraham was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him and his descendants. God promises this in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The genealogy in Matthew starts with Abraham because Matthew was writing to a more Jewish audience and he wants to stress that Jesus was the long-awaited promised Messiah. But Jesus was the specific, unique, prophesied one. Jesus being in line of Abraham not only connects him to the father of the nation, but it connects him to this blessing and the fulfillment of the blessing that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Jesus. Well, now we know what family and what land the promised seed of the woman was, was to come. Next in the lineage, we highlight that Jesus is the son of Judah. The promise God gave to Abraham was passed on to his son Isaac and then to his grandson Jacob. Jacob became the father of the twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel. And at the end of his life, Jacob pronounced a prophetic blessing on each of his twelve sons. Judah was the fourth son in age. But his three older brothers had disqualified themselves 
from their birthright because of their actions. Therefore, Judah and his descendants were promised the ruler's scepter and staff, the right to rule as the royal line. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. The obedience of the nations is his. The Messiah had to come through the line of Judah. The royal line began with Judah, and Jesus was his direct heir. Jesus is the fulfillment of the one who is to come, who belongs the obedience of the nations. Next in the lineage, we see the all-important truth that Jesus is the son of David, recorded for us in Matthew and Luke. David was promised by God that his royal dynasty would never end, that it would last forever. In 2 Samuel 7.16, God says to David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Messiah had to be a descendant of King David. This is where these two genealogies in Luke and in Matthew start to differ with who follows after David. Matthew, tracing the lineage of Jesus through Joseph, Jesus then is connected by Joseph to all who sat on Judah's throne, the royal line, after David, beginning with Solomon. Jesus is in the line of all the kings who ruled Judah. Now the last in the royal line of the kings of Judah was the king Jehoiakim. But as you study, you find out something very interesting about this king. That he was a wicked king. And God had declared a curse on the king Jehoiakim. And he said to him in Jeremiah 22.30 that none of his descendants would ever be king. But the Messiah has to come through this line. But the line has been cursed. That none of the descendants would be king. So what do you do with this dilemma? Well, Joseph, as we know, is the earthly father of Jesus, was directly descended from Jehoiakim. But since Jesus was not his son by birth, but by adoption, Jesus escapes the curse of Jehoiakim. You see, the virgin birth not only made it possible for Jesus to escape the curse of original sin, but it also provided for Jesus the connection to the royal line through Joseph, and yet escaping the curse of Jehoiakim. You see what interesting, what, what precision God is doing in fulfilling his prophecies and setting out specific identifiers of who the Messiah is. The Gospel of Luke detailing the lineage of Jesus through Mary traces the line of David through his son Nathan. Mary was a descendant from David through this line. Thus, Jesus obtained the legal or royal right to the, to the throne through Joseph and the physical right through Mary. The curse of Jehoiakim had to be avoided without giving up the physical connection to the throne of David. God minutely fulfilled his word through his son Jesus. See, this could only happen to one person. Our Jesus. Luke's genealogy ends calling Jesus the Son of God, and Matthew's ends calling Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Both Matthew and Luke carefully emphasize that Jesus was not the physical son of Joseph, 
Jesus' real father was God. Now, at first glance, at a list of family ancestries doesn't seem all too important. However, the genealogy of Jesus is vital to all that he came to accomplish. It identifies Jesus as the Messiah. They're clear indicators that Jesus matches each one. Only a son of Adam could pay for the curse of sin and defeat Satan. Only a son of Shem (coughs) could lead the way to a personal relationship with God. Only a son of Abraham could bless all nations of the earth. Only a son of Judah could lay royal claim to authority over all the people of Israel. Only a son of David could reign and rule forever. And only the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, could bring salvation to the world. Jesus alone, Jesus is the only one who satisfies the demands of history in his ancestry. For God has faithfully preserved the line of the promised Messiah for thousands of years. Well, next we see that Jesus fulfilled prophecy about where he was born. There are two main prophetic fulfillments I want to look at here. The first is in Numbers 24:17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, what's very interesting here is these words don't come from this great prophet of Israel, but these words come from Balaam, a false pagan prophet that was hired to curse Israel, but then instead that God used to heap blessings upon Israel. Balaam wanted to curse and hurt the people of Israel, but God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, brings about good and truth out of Balaam's reluctant heart and lips. This passage speaks unmistakably about the coming of the Messiah, and both Judaism and the early church affirm such an understanding. Many have pointed out that perhaps it was only the Magi who fully understand the prophetic fulfillment of these verses. Because as we read in Matthew 1, 1 through 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So why did the Magi think that there was a newborn king of the Jews? Because they saw his star in the east. The heavenly occurrence triggered in the hearts and the minds of the Magi to seek this newborn king and to worship him. It's interesting that an outsider, a foreigner, a non-Jew made the prophecy. And outsiders, foreigners, non-Jews fulfilled the prophecy over and over again. God is making it clear that he's the God of the whole world. It's amazing that details, God is working out his plan. But it doesn't stop there. As the Magi come into Jerusalem to seek this newborn king, they create quite a stir in Jerusalem. The teachers of the law, the Old Testament scholars, tell them you know, where Messiah is to be born. Where was the anointed one to be born? And these Jewish religious leaders, they all know. And they quote Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew that the Messiah was to be born 
in Bethlehem. They knew that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. One of the distinguishing marks of the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Well, the Magi leave Jerusalem, the miraculous star leads them to the very dwelling place of the Holy Child in the city of Bethlehem. The prophetic fulfillment could not be more clear. The star in the city of Bethlehem identified Jesus as the Messiah. And there are other fulfilled prophecies around the birth narrative of Jesus, like John the Baptist as the forerunner, as prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi. The Holy Family fleeing to Egypt as foretold in Hosea. Herod's murderous rampage is foretold in Jeremiah. And the return of the family from, Nazareth, from uh, Egypt to Nazareth was prophesied in Jeremiah. Well, next we see that Jesus not only fulfilled prophecy about where he was born, but about how he was born. This is one of the most beautiful and amazing prophecies in all of the scriptures. The prophecy that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and, and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You know, as Christians, we've lived with this truth for so long that perhaps we've lost some of the wonder and the amazement of it all. This is a great, mind-boggling miracle. God is with us. Only God could set up such a scenario. Because only God could bring about the impossible. Listen to how Matthew describes it in his Gospel. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Folks, you see, this miracle, the miracle of Christmas, is no small thing. God coming into this world through the birth of a baby. God taking on humanity, the second person of the Trinity, becoming forever the one and only God-man, 100% God, 100% man. From the very beginning of Genesis, just after the very first sin on planet Earth, God said that there was only one way to deal with a sin problem. And that was to deal with it himself. From the very beginning, God's plan was that, the, that he would save his people, the world, from their sins. Jesus came to save his people. Jesus came to save you and me from our sins. The virgin-born son, this God-man, is further described in prophecy there in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. To us the Son is given, and a government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This virgin-born Son, who Matthew says would be given the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, 
would also be given these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of these names are full of messianic, divine implications. They clearly teach the divinity of the coming Christ. Because only God could be called those names. Only God Himself could be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Folks, the wonder of it all, Jesus, the incarnation of God. Some of the most powerful words of all of our scripture describe the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. You see, we could not reach up to him. So he came down to us. We could not move one inch closer to him. So he literally moved all of heaven and earth to come to us. Given all the time that we could ever want, we could not find God. So instead, God changed history, orchestrating time and space and eternity to come to us. No matter how much wealth we'd have, no matter what gifts we could bring, no matter what great acts of service we could offer, it would gain us nothing towards God. So he willingly and purposely laid aside the glories of heaven and humbled himself in the most amazing of ways, taking on the very nature of a servant so that he could do what only he could do, offer salvation to mankind. You see, this great God didn't come to us as the all-powerful ruler. Though he is all-powerful, this great God didn't come to us forcing his will upon us. Though he is sovereign over all things, this great God didn't come to us as the ruler of the universe. Though by his very words, the universe came into being. This great God didn't come to us as the rightful king, though his kingdom alone is eternal. This great God is more powerful, more frightening, more holy, more majestic, more fearsome than anything we could ever imagine. So what did this great God do? How did our great God come to us? He came as a baby, vulnerable, dependent, fragile. He came to grow up as a man, to experience what we experience, to feel what we feel, to struggle with the challenges of life, and to provide a sinless sacrifice for our sins. Philippians says he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There has never been a greater act of love than what Jesus had done for us. So the Old Testament prophecies left identifiers for us so that we could know for certain who is the Messiah. The clues are there for all of us to see that Jesus is the one. It's Jesus at Golgotha on the cross. He alone is the one who satisfies all 300 specific identifiers. He alone is the fulfillment 
of Old Testament prophecy. He alone is the Messiah, and he proved it. Folks, it's not faith. It's fact. This is fact we're talking about here. Jesus, and only Jesus, fulfills all the clues, satisfies all the specific Unique identifiers. Our faith is not based on some blind hope. Our faith is not based on what might have been or might be. No, our faith has the surest foundation of fact, of truth, of reality. Jesus is the one. Jesus alone can save us. Jesus alone can save you and me. At this Christmas time, We remember the baby, but we worship our Savior. We remember the manger, but we celebrate our Savior. How about you? Have you ever thought about it that way? That Jesus proved it by fact, through some 300 specific identifiers, that He is the one? Do you believe it? And if not today, today is your day to exchange your life, to exchange your sin for his life, for his holiness, to build your life off of the fact of Jesus Christ. Christian, the question for you today is how are you living out that fact? Are you living your life like it's a fact? Like Jesus is the one? Are you living your life with a sure foundation for your faith? Unshakable truth and reality? See, it's easy to hear these Christmas messages and let them kind of go in one ear and out the other. But the challenge for us is to think today. To think about the truth that the Bible is teaching us today. That the Bible proves That Jesus is the Messiah. What difference is that making in your life today? It's a fact. Father, we pray now at these moments. Your Bible is clear in so many ways. We could go on and on and on with prophecy after prophecy and fulfillment after fulfillment. We just looked at these moments of your birth. And the facts are clear. Because, Lord, you wanted us to know. You want us to know who the specific Messiah is. It was your plan to not leave it a mystery, a nebulous, but to make it clear, understandable, truth that we can then build our life off of. The facts. So Lord, I pray today that we all might be encouraged today. That our faith is based off of redemptive fact. Fulfilled prophecy. And also, Lord, we pray that if we've not been living that way, you'd help us to. And if there's one here today that just now for the first time have come to understand that, the fact of the Savior, that they this day would exchange their life for Jesus' life. Lord, we love you so much and we thank you.
for all that you've done for us and how this Christmas season we celebrate our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.